Thank you, Clay. Good morning, everybody. Turn your Bibles to Titus chapter 1. Our text this morning is Titus chapter 1, verses 10 through 16. Uh, But for sake of context, I think I want to start reading in verse 7. So Titus chapter 1, starting in verse 7, and we'll read down through 16. Follow along with me. Verse 7, for an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. Now our passage, verse 10. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Just pray pray with me real quick. Lord, thank you for the ability just to gather corporately and worship you through, through music and the study of your word. I pray that you'd help me to speak clearly now and just help us to have humble, contrite spirits, Lord, as we approach your word this morning. Well, we know from our study that Paul and Titus have established churches across the island of Crete. And then Paul has to, to leave rather abruptly And so Titus is left with multiple churches that have yet to establish or put in place elders. And this causes a leadership vacuum of sorts, and it sets the stage for our text today. On Crete, there are multiple churches with no leadership to protect and guide them, and we quickly see the wolves come out. Satan and sinful men waste no time. They see opportunity and vulnerability, and they quickly strike putting Titus and the churches in a very challenging situation. And it is clear that in this instance, godly elders who are sound in truth must be appointed to silence false teachers who are distorting the truth. If you've ever been in a situation that has no leadership or ineffective leadership, you know for better or worse that that void will be quickly filled. And we can see that from our text, the situation quickly took a turn for the worse. Now, as I was thinking through this, the dissension and the chaos and the lack of leadership, I was trying to think of an example to help us kind of wrap our arms around the text, and politics quickly came to mind. And I was thinking about a couple years ago, the 6th District of Virginia had a convention-style election that I was involved with. I was helping a grassroots candidate run there, and basically a convention-style election is where um, you go around and you register folks to be delegates, and then on the appointed day, those delegates all vote, and then that whoever wins gets to run for Congress against the other party's candidate. 
And in the 6th district, it always goes Republican. So basically, whoever won this convention would be the next congressman. And so you had all kinds of folks running. I think there were six or seven, maybe eight folks that ran for, or for, uh, for Congress that day. And when we got there, uh, you kind of divide into different committees and decide on what the rules for the convention would be. It's, it's a really interesting process, unique experience in American politics. But it quickly became apparent that folks weren't looking for a, a, fair, pro a fair process. Um, I mean, it just devolved into yelling matches and last minute room changes so that you couldn't vote on the rules and it would give certain candidates a different edge. And by the end of the day, it was we were just fractured into multiple little groups, even though ultimately we were in the same party, but no one trusted each other and it was chaotic. And I think that's just a, just a glimpse what I felt in that situation, probably what the Cretans were feeling um, as these false teachers came in and take over. Ungodly men had taken hold of the leadership reins and were driving the church and her flock in inappropriate directions. And it was all for self-gain. Let's look at the text. I've divided this passage into three sections. Our first section will be verses 10 through 13, and we'll call that the problem. Verses 10 through 13, the problem. Our next section will be verses 13 through 14, 13b, I should say, and through verse 14, we'll call that the response. And then finally, verses 15 through 16, the reality. So we have the problem, the response, and the reality. Let's start in verse 10. Right off, we see the passage in verse 10 starts with for. So we have to ask the question, what is the for there for? And we know from what Rich taught us last week that leadership in the form of elders must be appointed, put in place, and what those qualifications are to be. And then moving into our passage today, we see that the primary reason for these elders, or one of the primary reasons for these elders to be put in place was to combat false teachers. False teachers are the problem that we see in verses 10 through 13. So as we read verses 10 through 13, let's look at the brand of men we're dealing with. Look back, at, starting at verse 10. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. So I said brand of men that we're dealing with, verse 10 through 13, because these type of men weren't new to Paul, and they haven't gone away. They're still here today. And so I think we need to just establish what these type of, of men and women look like so that we're able to see them as we operate in our own lives. All right, when you think of a brand, uh, if you go overseas, you may not be able to read the sign, but you know a McDonald's when you see one because they've established a brand. That's what we want to do this morning, establish a brand with these false teachers so we're able to identify them quickly before they can do too much harm. All right, so they're prevalent today, and I hope, again, this text can just give us an idea of, of what we're dealing with. And I went ahead and just went through the whole passage, uh, verse 10 through 
uh, through 16 and kind of compiled all the descripting words Paul uses. Listen to this. There are many insubordinate, empty talkers, deceivers, shameful gain, liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons, Jewish myths, detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Paul spares no rhetoric. And at first read, I think it's tempting to see all this descriptive language and kind of glaze over, but Paul is not just being dramatic or cavalier in his description to no one's surprise. Paul is very intentional with his description of these men. All right, so who are we dealing with? Well, Paul says in verse 10 that they are the circumcision party. Now, these are Jews who believe that Jesus was the Messiah, but that you still had to be circumcised and you still had to follow the Mosaic ceremonial law in order to be saved. Listen to Acts 11, verse 2. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them? All right, so these types of people are all over the New Testament. There are various spots we see them. I'm not going to get too into the weeds here talking about every instance where we see these men or uh, go over all the history of them, but I want, I want you to understand, simply put, these type of men and women believed that the gospel was not enough. All right? That's what the circumcision party believed. The gospel wasn't enough. You had to do more. I remember Pastor Farrell describing this one time, these type of people. He said, these men take the gospel and they build extra biblical fences around it in order to protect it. Uh, But inevitably, these extra biblical layers are turned into self-elevating or money-making schemes. And those of the circumcision party believed that the gospel was not enough and it had turned into a scheme of the highest order. And again, we see this throughout Scripture, and listen to this description Paul gives in Romans 16. It's at the end of Romans. Uh, Paul's giving his final instructions. And starting in verse 17, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Sound familiar? They may not have been specifically of the circumcision party, but it's the same type of, same brand of men we're dealing with here. So they've twisted the gospel in a way that benefits them, and it it seems that this core of Jews have spread their beliefs to many of the Cretans, and things were spiraling out of control. Look back at verse 10. There are many. Don't miss that. There isn't just one. This is like a house infested with termites. There are many men. If you were to ask Pastor Farrell or Clay, they would tell you this is not a one-and-done problem. This is a constant point of work for them. And Paul describes them as insubordinate. He begins describing these men, all right? So insubordinate is the first word we have here. That means they were defiant to authority. In our context, they were specifically defiant to the church's authority over them. Authority meaning biblically sound men saved by God, holding each other accountable via the word of God. All right, that's biblically sound men saved by God, holding each other accountable via the word of God. That's our picture of accountability. That's our picture of authority here. And these men wouldn't have it. 
They're happy to do their own thing. And we see this all over our, our own church culture, men and women who aren't part of any church claiming to do the work of God. That's part of the brand, this insubordination, a struggle with biblical authority. Constant angst and argument, moving churches, never happy with what the pastor has to say. And inevitably, when these folks say or do something wrong and the church tries to reel them in for their own good, they won't have it. Be wary of people who won't submit to biblical authority. Beware of people who won't submit to their church. Listen to this. Be wary of liberty professors who say all the right things and are helpful in the classroom, but upon further investigation, they aren't members of a local church. I saw that a lot when I was at Liberty. That's dangerous. Be aware of social media influencers who are putting out seemingly helpful, relevant content, but upon further investigation, they aren't being accountable by a local church, and there is no discipleship happening in their lives. Whether it shows or not, these folks are on dangerous ground, and depending on the size of their platform, they're about to do damage to those around them. What they're doing is not biblical, therefore it is inevitable that trouble will come. And before we move on to empty talkers, I just want to say, too, these folks are in your lives. Don't, um, don't shake it off as kind of like this, this distant villain you might have to encounter one day. But these folks are around. You might even have some of these tendencies in your own heart. Watch for these tendencies. Watch for folks around you. You'll see it in small groups when you're gathering with friends. And it, it, it's not that, you know, someone gets a doctrine wrong and automatically, you know, they're a wolf in sheep's clothing. Um, but as we see, things can quickly get out of control, and it's worth taking note of. So Paul also calls them empty talkers. Empty talkers. Um, if you want an example of an empty talker, we can you know, just turn on Fox News or CNN. Uh, you'll hear someone ask a politician a question. This is my second political example, I'm realizing, but it's too easy. Um, They'll ask a question that deserves a thoughtful answer, but you'll just get empty rhetoric. They're afraid of offending a donor or lacking any real convictions themselves. They'll, they'll give you empty words. And these false teachers weren't carefully studying the word of God. They were taking the word and coupling it with their own clever thoughts and appealing to the masses in a worldly manner. And the world and its ways always leaves us feeling empty. If you listen to someone preach and they spend the bulk of their time talking about themselves in a biblical text is not at the core of their message, you are being fed empty words. And they will not sustain you, especially when you try to battle sin or work through a trial. Dangerous, not helpful. This is empty talk. It won't sustain you like the meat of God's word. Sitting under empty talk is like eating nothing but cotton candy before running a marathon. It may look good and taste good, but it will not sustain you. And that's what this brand of men are doing. Empty talk. Paul sees it. And with their empty words and their unwillingness to be under authority, which, by the way, would have exposed their empty words, they're, just, they're deceiving the masses on Crete. And they were doing it for shameful gain. Shameful, dishonest gain is always at the core of a false teacher. And that is evident here. Verse 12, Paul appeals to one of the locals to make his point. 
Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons, it says in verse 12. And Paul is, Paul's upping the ante here. He's saying, look, even one of the local Cretans know that this is a tendency. Liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Again, we see they are deceivers, but not only that, also evil beasts and lazy gluttons, meaning they're acting on pure, selfish animal instinct. What can I do for me, my pleasure, my hunger, my needs, me, 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 and disregarding any semblance of moral behavior or care for others? Like animals, they're rolling in the muck and mire of their sin, and to make matters worse, they're using and abusing the word of God to make their sinful ends meet. Paul says they must be stopped. We see the brand of men we're dealing with here. Look at verse 11. They're upsetting whole families. Let's look at the reaction to these men. I'm going to run with politics again. I'm sure I'm not the only one that feels like sometimes neither party is really representing your views, but you, know, you feel like you've only got two options, so you've got to kind of fit in where you can. And we can imagine the families in Crete who are genuinely saved feeling torn. They know what's being said or preached is, is maybe not always correct, something is off, but these are the only churches in the area. So what are they supposed to do? And we see that when we don't have elders preaching sound doctrine that we can submit to, it causes chaos, confusion, and strife, even down to the family level. The church members are forced to choose from bad or worse, and if they don't pick either, they'll be churchless. Verses 10 through 13 sets us up with rather a hopeless feeling, all right? So verses 10 through 13, we see we have a problem. And within those verses, we identify the brand of men causing this problem and the response to these men also identifying that there is a problem. Let's look at verses 13b through 14, the response. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. All right, so in verse 11, we see Paul says they must be silenced. In verse 13, he says, rebuke them sharply. This is the response to the problem. Rebuke them sharply. There's no tiptoeing around it, no roundtable discussions to be had. These men must be rebuked and silenced immediately. How is this going to happen? Dealing with these men looked like this. Looks like this. Removing their platform, using the truth to silence them, and living godly lives to expose them. All right? These men are silenced by, by removing their platform, using truth to silence them, and living godly lives to expose them. You remember when Clay taught, in, in, also in chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, he taught that God has given all authority to Paul and in turn to Titus and these soon-to-be elders. So Titus is going to use this authority to immediately take away any platform these men held. Secondly, and kind of going hand-in-hand with, with that authority, they're going to use truth to silence these men and take them out of these platforms. These evil men will be, put to sil- will be silenced by truth. And if we look back in verse 9, context gives us the answer. 
right? It says he must hold firm. This is why we're having elders, why we need elders. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict it. And Jesus does this all the time in the Gospels. I thought of Matthew 22. And, and basically, Jesus is having a, a debate of sorts with the Sadducees. And in chapter 22, verse 29, Jesus answers them, and he says, You are wrong, because you, need, you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. Then Jesus goes on to explain why they're wrong. And in verse 34, we see, But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Jesus says, you're wrong because you don't know the Bible and you don't know God, and he silenced them. And they had to walk away and regroup. Jesus silenced them with truth. So how will these men in Crete be silenced? Men with conviction from God will be appointed as elders. They will preach sound doctrine that will expose and silence the false teachers. They'll also invoke their authority to remove any platform these teachers had. All right, men with conviction from God will be appointed as elders, and they will use sound teaching to expose and silence these false teachers. They will be silenced by truth. These men will also be silenced by holy living. If we look back at verses 6 through 8 of chapter 1, we see that the elders are completely opposite from the men that we see in, in verses 10 through 16. And in 1 Peter 2.15, it says, For this is the will of God that by doing good, you put to silence the ignorance of the foolish people. By doing good, you put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. This is another reason Paul says elders must be above reproach. The fruit of their lives will match what they are teaching, unlike the men who were trying to take over in Crete. Good, effective leaders are driven by godly conviction. And when Titus got this letter, when he was reading about how Paul describes these false teachers, no doubt names and faces were coming to mind. He knew who needed to be silenced. Paul didn't need to name names. Similarly, when Titus read verses 6 through 9, I suspect there were also names and faces coming to mind. Leaders are marked by their convictions. And the elder qualities we see in verses 6 through 9 come from deep-rooted convictions that are only achieved by God's saving grace in the careful and study and submission to his word. All right, the elder qualities we see in verses 6 through 9 come from deep-rooted convictions that are, deep, that are only achieved by God's saving grace in the careful study and submission to his word. And we see this type of conviction all through scripture and throughout history. I thought of Elijah in 1 Kings 18, he mocks the Baal. You guys know the story. And his prophets. And he orders his own altar to be drenched with water. And God rains fire down from heaven and consumes it all. Elijah was driven by conviction that there is only one true God. Think of Peter and John in Acts 4. Right? Peter and John are preaching in Acts 4. They're arrested. They're told not to preach anymore. They're told to be silenced. And what happens? They keep on preaching. They said, we cannot be silenced. We cannot be silent. And if you want a, lecture, if you want a lesson in conviction, you can re-listen to Pastor Farrell teach through the first few chapters of Daniel. We see solid conviction and how Daniel built that conviction. 
Um, even in more modern history, we see this type of conviction. Martin Luther is an easy example. At the Diet of Worms, he says famously, here I stand, I cannot do otherwise, God help me. Or I thought of Margaret Thatcher. In the face of great political and social compromise, Margaret Thatcher famously says, this lady is not for turning. Iconic conviction. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For better or worse, history tells the story of those who had conviction. Effective leaders are driven and held by deep conviction. And these God-given conviction mark our lives with a striving to live holy and a desire to put a stop to false teaching. Good leaders with this type of conviction love to be in the fight. And there's about to be a showdown on Crete. And the newly appointed elders, propelled by the convicting power of God's word and Holy Spirit, are about to silence these false teachers. Why must they be silenced? It seems obvious, with these men in place, the word of God is not being proclaimed, and the Christians in Crete are not being equipped to share the gospel and live godly lives. But additionally, we have to remember that there is hope for these unsaved men they are lost in sin and doing what is right in their own eyes. Look back at verse 13. Rebuke them that they may be sound in faith. So why are we rebuking them? So that they may be sound in faith. Let's look at the, our last point, the reality for these men. Look at verses 15 and 16. To the pure all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving nothing is pure but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. I think Paul is making it clear here that these men are unsaved. Let's, kind of, let's look at verse 15. I want to break it into two sections here. I'm going to read the first part of verse 15. To the pure, everything is pure. All right, let's pause there. If a person's heart and conscience are pure their actions will likely also be pure. All right, we continue reading. But those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Pause again. If a person's heart is corrupted by sin and unbelief, their actions will likely follow suit. Right? John MacArthur says, error does not produce virtue. Well said. Paul saying these men, they claim to know God, but their lives say otherwise. They're not producing the fruit of a believer, unlike the elders we, we see described earlier in the chapter. And I think Paul is emphasizing this because, though it might be obvious to us as we work through the text, I think at the time, these men were, were, were more deeply rooted than we, can, than we can kind of grasp. And there was confusion. We saw the whole families were upset. These men were good speakers. They're smart. Conniving might be a better word. And people were confused by them. And they were drawn away. And Paul wasn't here, so he had to write this letter and, and help Titus bring some of these things to light. Look at the words Paul uses in verse 16. Detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. Now remember who we're dealing with here the circumcision party, and I, th I think there's some irony here. 
with, with how Paul is describing these men. These are the same type of words that these false teachers would have been throwing at the believers on Crete, right? God's grace isn't enough. You need additional good works. That food or, or not being circumcised makes you detestable before God. That's what they were doing. And Paul is hip to the game. It's, it's not Paul's first rodeo. You'll remember Paul's own background before he was saved. I want to look at Philippians 3. I think this is helpful just to kind of for some background information here. So Paul in Philippians chapter 3, verse 2, he says, Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision who worship the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews to the law, a Pharisee as to zeal, a persecutor of the church as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. So Paul knows what these men are doing. He knows what they need to hear. And he throws it back in their face. He says, no, God's grace is enough. And your works are detestable without God's saving grace. Because of this evidence, these men need to be corrected. So that, again, verse 13, they may be sound in the faith. So that they may be stopped disrupting these churches. And if we look back at the beginning of the chapter, chapter 1, what are these elders called to do? They're not called to, to strong arm or outwit or, or run a social media campaign against these false teachers. They're charged to preach the gospel and live holy lives. And that is enough to dethrone these false teachers. I want to talk a little bit about application. So we saw the problem, verses 10 through 13. The responses in verse 13 through 14, and then we just went over the reality here. Um, and my point of application, I want to start by just giving you a warning. I mentioned this earlier, but again, not every elder or teacher who gets a doctrine wrong is a, is a wolf in sheep's clothing. And I think this is why we see that elders are involved in this instance here. Um, although we're called to be aware of these false teachers and, and, and call them out in our own lives, we have to remember um, just because someone takes maybe a different stance on you on one of these issues, maybe like the end times or spiritual gifts, we've got to learn to triage our theology, right? Just because someone takes a different stance than you on maybe the end times, you don't need to call them a, a lazy, detestable glutton. Um, so just be wary of that. And also, I think, like I said, the big takeaway here is we want to be able to identify these folks, though, when they do, when they do come around. And of course, we talked about their insubordination, their empty talk. They're also really just trying to please man. They're seeking, they're building themselves up and they're seeking man's approval. 
And I want to contrast that with what we would see from a godly elder. So turn to Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 2. want to read verses 1 through 7, and, and, and you'll just be able to see Paul's heart here and just how it is totally opposite from what we see the, the false teachers doing. 1 Thessalonians 2, starting in verse 1, For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain, but after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing to men, but God who examines our hearts. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness, nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ we might have asserted our authority. But we prove to be gentle among you, as a nursing mother tenderly, tenderly cares for her own children. Having, having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. Hear the contrast there? Paul and these elders aren't in it for themselves. They're tenderly caring for these folks. They're not seeking the approval of men, and that's just evident in their lives. And again, going back to, to this, these, these foundational convictions, we see these convictions inspire godly living, not selfish living, not evil living. So, as you look to identify these types of folks in your life, do so by studying the word, laying the truth in your heart as a bedrock. And when you have that truth, out of that truth, out of that gospel, you'll develop convictions that will inspire healthy fruit that we see here in scripture. And with that, you'll be able to quickly identify without even trying. It'll be, it'll, you'll develop instinct. You'll be able to spot these, these selfish false leaders as you, as you develop these, this grace in your life from God. All right. We're short on time. I want to wrap up there. Go ahead and pray with me. Lord, we thank you so much for this text. We thank you for the fact that you know that we would deal with this today and, and thank you for giving us these words from Paul to Titus just to help equip us fight these evil men, Lord, and to do so for your glory and for their sake. Pray, Lord, that you would uh, bless the rest of our Sunday today, be with Pastor Farrell as he brings the word to us. We ask these things in your name. Amen.